God, what an incredible thought. That your love for us never stops. God, it's, uh, your love is timeless. Um, it's consistent. never changes. God, we can't go anywhere to hide from it. Um, it's uh, what an incredible thing, God, because it's about you. It's not about us. Thank you for being faithful and consistent, for God being full of uh, integrity, for loving us even before we were born, for loving us when we're not very lovable. God, thank you so much. God, help us as we sense your love just now. Help us to be open to your word. Speak to us. Change us that we might return that love and that our love for you might go on and on and on and on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Mentioned at the beginning, if it's your first time here, a special welcome to you. If, uh, if you need a cup of coffee this morning, get it after church, all right? <laughs> um, you know, if I was thinking about this message. We're gonna um, we're in a series from the Book of Acts. If you're if you're new to North Point, um, we're going to be in Acts chapter six and chapter seven today. A long passage of scripture. I was thinking ahead of time and thinking time change Sunday. That that's a time that it's really important to have a really short passage of scripture. Right, very focused. Keep everybody there. Keep everybody on track. Um, and. We've got probably the longest passage of Scripture that we've had in this series to, to take a look at. You're going to have some homework and going to need to do some work on your own uh, this afternoon to kind of catch up on part of it that, uh, that we're not going to spend a lot of time in this morning. Um, have, you ever, have you ever been in a situation, found yourself in a situation where your emotions and your intensity went from zero to 60 in like a half a second? It, it was like something happened and the switch flipped and man, you were all there crazy in an instant. Um, we're going to find that in the end of Acts chapter 7 today. You'll, you'll see that. Uh, I was thinking about that and, and thinking about uh, last September we moved into our house in uh, Labor Day weekend. And I remember, you know, we kind of got stuff in and got stuff acquainted and uh, got the paper set up, so the paper's coming. One of the first, uh, one of the first weeks that we were in our house, read the front page of the paper, and there's this report of this road rage thing that happened. I think in Howell, where uh, this this guy didn't seem that there had been kind of a long-term altercation, but this guy stopped, stopped the other car, got out with a gun, and and shot the guy in front of his wife. You remember that last September? Um, I, I remember reading it and thinking, what have I done in moving to Lansing where, uh, you know, what, what's going on? That's, that's that intensity that changes everything in a second. That's inside all of us, and we'll see it in, um, in some minor players in the, in the story today. But uh, it, it has the ability to, to make a huge impact. Um, we are in Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to start 
uh, today in a series about the bold new beginnings of the church, the boldness of the apostles, the boldness of the followers of Jesus. And, um, and we'll see more of that today. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Pause for just a second. Hebrews and Hellenists are having this dispute. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, right? It's like, who are those and what's the deal with the widows? The Hebrews were the, that, that was terminology that was used to describe people who had been born in Palestine, born in Israel, that their native language was Hebrew, the, um, their lineage was clear, they were there. The Hellenists were people who were Jewish, completely Jewish, but maybe lived in another part of the earth, maybe not in Judea. Their primary language was probably Greek instead. They knew Hebrew, but Greek was their primary language, and they were probably more acquainted with the Greek culture. So the Jews, who were the purists, the Hebrews, had, they kind of looked down on the Hellenists. And the Hellenists, they, they were Jews too, and they thought, that's not fair of them to look down on it. So there was this tension. And it centers around the widows, these old women, um, and, and it focuses on them not being treated fairly in in um, getting their food. We've talked the last several weeks about the unity that existed in the church, right? It, it was incredible. People are selling property and giving money, laying it at the apostles' feet so that their needs can be met. And, and there's, there are multiple lists that says, this is what the church looked like. The church is growing. Um, there's this sense of unity and compassion and care for each other. And then Acts chapter 6 starts, and there's this division that takes place. Now, it probably could have been men, right? But women, sometimes when they get older... I'm just saying. I didn't say anything, right? I'm just saying. Um, I'm on my own. Yeah, there you go. Like I said, it could have been men. Um, for whatever it's worth, just a very side issue here for a second. Um, my wife, Deb, is not here. She's in, she's in Joplin seeing the grandbabies. Uh, uh, and uh, she'll be back. Yeah, she'd get me for this one. But um, she, I, I can remember when I was teaching at the college, she did a, she did a devotion for the college students, uh, for the women in one dorm. And I can still remember her devotion, uh, her putting it together. It, her devotion was how to be your grandkids' favorite grandmother. Isn't that, that kind of a neat idea? How to be your grandkids' favorite grandmother. And the whole point of her deal was you never get to be an old person that's, that's wonderful, except by being wonderful all the way through your life. You don't ever get to be an old person who's ornery and crotchety and mean, except by being orn and ornery and mean and crotchety one step at a time. So, got this thing going between the women that are there. They feel like they're not being treated fairly. There's, a, there's kind of this cultural racial tension going on. And the apostles say, this isn't good. We've got to figure out how to get this taken care of. The twelve summoned the number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This problem existed in the church and the apostles said, you know what, we can't let this problem go on. We've got to jump in and fix it, but it's not going to be us. There need to be some other people who can take care of this so that we can do what God has called us to do. And there are some people in the church that God has called to take care of this problem. What is it that God has called you to do? Here we see two different kinds of things. The apostles say, you know what, our ministry is is prayer and the word. And I think that there are some people here at North Point that God has called to have that same kind of ministry. But there were also these seven guys that were appointed to take care of this this issue that was a logistical issue, right? Um, It it was a problem-solving kind of an issue. And God had brought those people together. And it's interesting to me, I grew up in the church, and so I always thought, you know, they're called the deacons. The word deacon means servant. I always thought, oh, yeah, the deacons are kind of like the junior guys. They're, they're lesser than the elders, that, that kind of deal. In studying this passage of Scripture, I don't think that that's the case. Because look at the qualifications that are there for these guys who take care of these women. You think it's just purely a logistical issue, right? But the apostles say, okay, three requirements for these guys. They have to have a good reputation. People outside have got to speak well of them. They have to be full of the Holy Spirit. And they have to be full of wisdom to serve tables. Is that crazy? It was an important job because it impacted the unity of the church. What is it that God has called you to do? Understand that there are thousands of roles within the church, within the church universal, within the church at North Point as well. There are thousands of roles. What is it that God has called you to do? Because whatever God has called you to do, that the role that he has equipped you to play in the body, it's critical. It's critical. And we need to live the life We need to um, live with the requirements that that the apostles set out so that we can be used by God to minister to the church as a whole. Um, You've got to have great reputation. You've got to be full of the Holy Spirit. What's What's that look like? What's it look like to say, oh, yeah, that person... They're full of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? You know, they could have been talking about a supernatural kind of thing. Apostles laid their hands on them and full of the Holy Spirit that way. I don't think that that's probably the case. I think it's probably talking about just a reference back to Acts 2, the whole idea that, that, um, that, that when we're forgiven, when we give our lives to Jesus, that, that we experience the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside us. That's true of every follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside us. So what's it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? What's that look like? We have the benefit now of being able to look at Galatians chapter 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what it looks like to be full of the Holy Spirit. If you look at that verse behind my, behind my shoulders, 
When you start to think about that in terms of your life, if you're like me, I look up there and think, oh, that one quality. Some of those, some of those, yeah, I'm doing pretty good, but man, this quality, that quality. Oh, I'm, I'm not living it out very well. You know, the thing about the fruit of the Spirit, about being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's nothing that we can manage on our own. That's not anything that we can say, oh, if I just do this and this and this, I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll, that fruit will be evident in my life. That comes simply by, by living a life that's crucified to Christ. That, that we daily allow Him to come in and take complete control over every aspect of our life. When we do that, when we yield control, when, when we quit worrying about us, when we quit worrying about self, when we live for Jesus, the Spirit comes in and those seeds start to take root and they begin to grow and that fruit begins to show itself. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with wisdom. What's, what's it look like to be filled with wisdom? In, our, in America, in our culture, um, we, have a, we have a different perspective than, than they did in, in Eastern cultures. Because we value knowledge more than we value wisdom. Right? What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is, an, is acquiring facts. It's getting more information. We go to college so that we get more knowledge. We get degrees so that we can say we have this knowledge. Wisdom is taking knowledge and living it out, applying it to everyday life. If you've got problems raising your kids, where do you go for help? Most people will go buy a book by somebody that's got a Ph.D. in child psychology, right? Because that's the expert that has the ideas for how I can take care of this problem with my kids or, or in my family or with my wife or husband. In reality, we'd probably be far better off to look for the person around us who's wise. The person, regardless of their job, they may work at a convenience store, they may work at a department store, they may be a plumber or a carpenter or whatever, but they've got a relationship with their kids and they're able to love their kids and be wise in helping their kids grow into the likeness of Jesus. Because that's what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is applying God's truth to every aspect of our lives. How do we get wisdom? James chapter 1 says, all we need to do is ask. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he gives to everybody generously. You want wisdom? Ask God for it. Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Why is that? Because when we understand who God is, when we understand the magnitude of who God is, our perspective changes. And all of a sudden we begin to see things as they really are, not as they are, as they appear to us around us. We, we get wisdom from God in that. Verse 7 says, As they took care of this problem, as the apostles... Um, selected these seven men to be servants that were full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, of good reputation, and they began to take care of the needs of these widows. Verse 7 says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That was a phrase I'd never seen before. I've read Acts a whole bunch of times. I don't know that I ever made the connection to say when, when the deacons began to do what God had designed them to do, when the church began to take care of the needs that existed within, the religious leaders who weren't yet followers of Jesus began to follow him. Why? What, what's that connection? I think it's this. I think it's that the, that the Jewish leaders, that the priests... They had a heart for God. They wanted to please God. They just didn't get the whole picture. And when they saw the church living that out, taking care of needs, taking care of needs of, of, of widows, that they said, I want to be a part of that. And it, draw, it drew them to Jesus. Verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Does this sound familiar? This is the story of Jesus, right? You've got false accusers saying he's going to destroy the temple. They've, uh, we've been through this routine. This is the third time in the book of Acts that false accusations are brought about followers of Jesus, specifically about Stephen. There's this guy who's able to do signs and wonders, who's full of God's spirit, and, and the, the Jewish leaders don't like it. The, the um, Friedman Synagogue, that, that reference is actually to Pharisees as opposed to the, the last sets of uh, leaders that we've talked about the last few weeks, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were part of the, the Sanhedrin, some of them. But this is, this is probably dealing with a different kind of a sect that they stir up and get them to, to fuss with Stephen. Um, have you ever noticed when, when somebody's a troublemaker, when somebody at work is bad news, they have some physical traits that you can notice typically, right? Um, sometimes they, it's like they're, they're all the time looking around, shifty eyes. They're checking out what's going on around us. There's this nervous energy. We kind of have this awareness. Some, something's not quite right with that person, right? You know, our radar goes up for them. What's the case with Stephen? They, they've said, Stephen's this troublemaker. He's inciting riots. He's doing all this stuff. It says that Stephen had the face of an angel, just the opposite effect of a troublemaker. It's interesting to me that the Pharisees, in recognizing that he had the face of an angel, the Pharisees were drawn to God with Stephen just in their presence. Do you know anybody like that? Anybody who's so full of the Holy Spirit that when you're around them, you just want to be around them all the time. Because it's like, man, they're close to God. And it's like when I'm with them, I'm in God's presence. 
That should be the description of all of us, right? We should be filled with God's Spirit to the place that we have that same kind of countenance. That's not something that we can force or create on our own. That's the result of God's Spirit living in us and Him having control over us. Chapter 7 begins and says, The high priest said, Are these things so, these charges that they've brought against you? Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And in my notes I have dot, dot, dot. Here's your assignment this afternoon. Okay, read chapter 7 because um, Stephen goes into this explanation that's a long explanation. It tells the history of the Jewish people. Stephen was an educated guy, and he recounts the history of the Jewish nation. He tells their story um, and, and does it in an incredibly cool way. These leaders that have him on trial, they ask a question. It's a pretty simple question. They ask, are these things so? And you would think that the answer would be one of two things, right? Yes or no. Pretty simple question. And yet Stephen recognizes the opportunity that's there to talk about Jesus, to let God's truth come into their lives in a very clear way. And Stephen doesn't say yes or no. He goes into this explanation that draws his listeners in so that he can communicate the truth of God. Let me just challenge you. I, I think sometimes for us, when, when there are conversations about God that happen in our lives, conversations that happen at work, conversations that happen in the neighborhood, sometimes we give the yes or no answer when God would really want us to engage in a conversation that would allow more of his truth to come in. We, we go with the simple thing that ends the conversation rather than expanding the conversation. Because what Stephen does is he begins to communicate to the people in a language that they understand. He, um, he uh, takes what they know, what their experience is, what their culture is, connects with that culture, and then begins to, to, um, to tell the story of Jesus. Um, We need to start with the world of the listener when we're having a conversation about God. To start with their world and to bring God's story into their world rather than to just dump information and give answers. Does that make sense? Sometimes we just want to uh, download what we know. But what we need to do is to, is to start with where they live and allow God's truth to come into that world. That might mean a conversation about a song, music that's on the radio. It might, it might be a conversation about what's on television or what uh, movies. It might be a conversation about what's happening in current events or what, what's happening at work or what's happening in the world of their family. But when we start with where they are and allow God's truth to come in, all of a sudden God's truth makes sense in a much, much greater way. Now, the end result of that in this story is kind of crazy because um, ultimately it leads to a place that um, it creates this really, really strong response from the listeners. Because Stephen says, here's the story. God worked in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph 
and Moses and the prophets. And at each step, people rejected what God was doing, the work that God was doing. Ultimately, he comes down to the place in verse 51 that he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Boy, that's bold, powerful, direct. Understand what Stephen had done if, if you've got your Bibles out and are looking down through chapter 7. Notice, notice a couple things. Stephen touches on words that connects him with his listeners. He uses the pronoun our multiple times. Our fathers, our history, our leaders, our prophets. Stephen connects with the people who are around him. He uses words that are significant to them. He talks about the patriarchs. And for a Jewish listener to hear talk of the patriarchs, it was like, yeah, those are the guys who created our world that God used to draw us to him. There was an emotional connection that happened at that point. He talks about circumcision. Circumcision was a big deal to the Jews because it separated them from every other culture. And then down in verse 51, he turns because he's connected with people But then he begins to say you. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised. He takes that term that had been a term of connection and and uses it to, to really expose truth. He says, you uncircumcised people in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and didn't keep it. And what happened was that the listeners then went from zero to 60. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They literally put their fingers in their ears. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's climax to his response, his defense, is incredibly bold. He says, will you continue to resist the Holy Spirit? Will you always do that? Was there ever a time that you listened to God? You're just like your ancestors that refused to recognize the power of God. Moses, the prophets. You're just like them. Stephen Stephen uses the terminology, you stiff-necked people. Have you ever heard that terminology before? Who used it? Jesus did. Probably to these same guys. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised ears and hearts. They were unable to hear the truth. The boldness of Stephen, the boldness of his message, the boldness of his accusation, the boldness of his challenge, the boldness of the reality that he 
was communicating created a response in the people. They take Stephen out to stone him, and Stephen, Stephen recognizes, he sees something that exists in our world today, but we just don't see. Stephen sees that there's an intangible world that's more real than the tangible world that we can touch and see. Stephen sees that there's a spiritual realm going on all around us that we most of the time miss. God opens his eyes and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. What an incredible thing. And it changes everything. I mean, it gives perspective to his life. Stephen prays for the forgiveness of his attackers, for the forgiveness of his accusers. Here's the message, I think, from the end of Stephen's message. And it's, it's a pretty straightforward one, and it's real direct. Be prepared to die well. Be prepared to die well. When I, when I first read, um, was reading through Acts and thinking about this series, one of the notes that I made in, in my, uh, for myself for the series was about this passage was, there are things worse than death. There are things worse than death. Think about that for a second, because for us in our culture, we think the worst thing that can happen is for somebody to die, right? There are things far worse than death. To reject Jesus eternally, it's far worse than death. To betray, to, you know, to, to betray your integrity, it's worse than death. It's, it's devastating. Death is not the end for us, for any of us, no matter where we are, right? There are things worse than death. Be prepared to die well. What's it mean to die well? Think about Stephen for a second. I don't think that he woke up that morning and thought, I'm going to die today. It was just a normal day for Stephen, right? He was doing his, doing his stuff as part of church. He was, he, um, he was maybe doing some signs and wonders. God was using him to help heal people. Maybe he was taking care of the widows. And all of a sudden he gets pulled in before this council and in a very short period of time, he ends up with big stones being thrown at him, hit him in the head, hit him in the body, and his life coming out of his, his body. Be prepared to die well. Um, none of us know when our death is coming. If, if I were to take these two chapters and condense it into three thoughts, these are the three big takeaways for me. From the, from the first eight verses, serve where God has called you. Serve where God has called you. Figure out what that is. What is it that God has equipped you to do? Serve where God has called you. How do you do that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The second takeaway for me, as as I've just digested this passage, is start with the world of the listener and share God's story. Start with where people are around you and allow God's story to come into their world. How do you do that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with wisdom. And the last thing is be prepared to die well. Uh, I've I've got a friend from when we were um, ministers in Maryland, from the uh, church in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, There was a guy there who was a leader that um, 
he was an executive for a, for a uh, large company, a national company. He was a, he was a big deal. He was one of those guys that when he walked into a, a large corporation, everybody shook because he was the CEO of that kind of corporation. Um, his name was uh, Dave, Dave Beamer, and uh, he was in the choir that I directed. He became a good friend. The last production we did, um, he had kind of the main role, and I had a, a kind of a secondary role. We got to sing a duet together. It was a really cool thing. Um, we moved from Maryland out to uh, Missouri, uh, from Missouri back to Northern Virginia. Uh, we moved to Northern Virginia in 2001, in, um, in uh, July of 2001. On September 11th of 2001, um, everything went crazy. Uh, the planes hit the towers, hit the Pentagon, um, and that morning I got an email message from my friends in Maryland that said, um, Dave and Peggy Beamer's son is unaccounted for. He's on a plane that was going from New Jersey to California. And right after that happened, we heard about Flight 93 going down in Pennsylvania. One of the guys I worked with said, um, wouldn't it be interesting if Dave and Peggy's son was a part of that, was a part of what happened there? Their son was Todd Beamer, the guy who said, let's roll. You know, you remember that. I talked to David several times in the years after 9-11. And one of the things that he said that has just really stuck with me was this. He said, um, he said Todd didn't wake up that morning expecting to be a hero. Todd didn't wake up that morning expecting to die. Todd didn't wake up that morning expecting necessarily to see the face of Jesus. But Todd had lived his life and prepared each day for all of those things. We don't know when we're going to die. And we need to prepare to die well today. We have no guarantees. Um, the, the timeliness of this message for me is um, it's, it's just real, very real. A week ago Saturday, my uncle... My uncle died. He was 85. Um, he'd been in a hospice for a year, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a big surprise. But it was my uncle that um, his family owned the cottage up at Crystal Lake that got us kind of up in this area for lots and lots of years. Um, my uncle was a, was a good man. He, was, he, he loved Jesus. But in the last five years, his family blew up. We went down yesterday for the funeral, and... Um, Two of his kids weren't at the funeral because of the fuss and the feud that exists in their family. You know how hard that is? Prepare now to die well. My, my challenge to you is don't leave stuff on your plate that you need to take care of today. If, if you've got, if you've got um, broken relationships in your family, take care of them. Don't let them sit. Don't think, oh, yeah, someday they'll get fixed. Don't think, you know what, I'm just happy having those broken relationships. I would rather do that because of all the hurt and stuff that's happened. Don't do it. Don't do it. Prepare now to die well. Stephen, when he woke up that morning, he didn't have a clue what was going to happen. That's true for all of us. Stephen was prepared to die well, and as a result, his face looked like an angel. When, when ultimately he's being murdered, 
Scripture paints it as a beautiful thing because he understood who Jesus was, that he was there ready to welcome him home. There's a world other than this that's more real than this one that we've got to be ready for. How do we do that? How do we be prepared to die well? It's to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with wisdom, 